Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all here, as always. Last week we began a, a new series to kind of carry us through most of the summer where we're looking at uh, different images and metaphors that are used in scripture to talk about God. Um, we find ourselves, we often don't think about it, um, I don't know how much you think about human language. Human language is really kind of an incredible mystery to me. Um, it's one of my favorite things to kind of reflect on um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, one of it is just the sheer, just the sheer wonder of it. I mean, I don't know if you're awake yet or not, <laughs> but, but, but if you are and you're within the, the sound of my voice, um, at one level I'm, you know, I'm sort of making sophisticated grunting noises, right? I mean, I'm forcing air over my vocal cords and forming certain kinds of sounds with my mouth. And through a very, very complex way, those sound waves are reaching your ear. And if you know all the physiology of it with the, the nerves, somehow, at least on some days, you're understanding what I'm saying. That's kind of a miracle when you really think about it. I mean, isn't it? I mean, just language and speech this way that we have of communicating, that that's, that that's even possible, is kind of a wonder. And then you begin to factor in you know, our attempt, by God's grace, to understand who God is. And we talk about the, the way in which God condescends in the incarnation, when God takes flesh and allows us to, to somehow glimpse who God is by God condescending to become one of us. But there's, and that's, that's a beautiful thing, and, and that is at the very heart of the Christian faith. But it's also the case that from the very beginning, I mean, God condescends, God's willing for us to try to understand God by allowing us to, to bring to speech something about who God is. Knowing that our human speech has all kinds of limitations. Right? In, in the same way that not everything that God could possibly be could be contained in one human person in Jesus Christ. Even though we believe that's the fullest expression of God we've ever seen, there still was limits to that. And there's still limits when we bring God to speech by its very character. This is so. There's an ancient tradition in the church has a fancy name I won't trouble you with, uh, but again, it's just a word, right? 
right? Well, I will. I will trouble you with it. It's called the apophatic <laughs> tradition. See, there you go. You've already forgotten it. Right? Uh, it's also called the, the, way, the negative way, the, the way of negation. And this will kind of mess you up on a Sunday morning when you're not only half awake. But a lot of the early church, when they were so aware of the limits of language, they said that at one level, about the only true things you can say about God is what God isn't. That's kind of weird, right? That anything you want to say positively about God is only going to be half true. The only things you can fully say about God that's absolutely true is what God isn't. God isn't this. We can say, well, that's true. But when you go to say what God is, you're always going to have to qualify it. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not here to defend. I'm just saying this is an ancient tradition. So the point is that Christians for a long time have understand the challenge of saying anything about God. Bringing God to speech is a challenge. And it's part of our human language. Our human language is limited. I was going to use this example last week, but as always, we run out of time. Uh, usually that's good for me because I'm usually just about getting into trouble and then it's time to run away for a week. Uh, so I'll get in trouble early today and then try to figure out and hope you'll just forget about it. Um, but let's just, last week we were talking, we, we began because it was Father's Day. Uh, we talked about the image of God as Father, which is a, is a predominant image both in Scripture uh, on the words, lips of Jesus, and in the tradition. And we talked about uh, a lot of what Christians have at stake about that, what's beautiful about that. Uh, we also talked about some of the limits of that and some of the ways in which, if that were the only image that we had, um, how it might uh, leave some things out about God that we wanted to be able to say. Right? Uh, and again, that's not... The limit, the limit is our language and our life, that any kind of metaphor or image we have of God will not be complete. And one of the challenges for uh, father language um, is in English, um, we have gendered pronouns. Right, you know this, right? Uh, for third-person uh, pronouns, we have three options, he, she, or it. That is a limit of English. If you've studied another language, you know that other languages do this differently. Okay? Uh, some languages, like French, everything is gendered. I don't know if you studied French. But everything has a gender. And you can't really, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, like, a table has a gender. You're thinking, like, why is it a table, like, male or female? Well, it's a tough way they think of it, right? I mean, but every, everything has a gender. And even if, and like, say, a professor might be uh, a male. If you're a female professor, you still use the female pronoun, even though you're, right, not that gender. That has nothing to do with that, right? Other languages don't have gendered pronouns at all. Okay? So they have pronouns that, that has nothing to do with gender. But when we 
talk about God and we want to use a personal pronoun because we think in some sense God is a person, not an it. Just seem, Calling God it just seems weird to us, rightly. We have to pick. Right? And we have. And in English we have traditionally used he. Even though from the very beginning the church was very clear that God is beyond gender. God has no gender. But we have always used he. Which is why, but we know that that's not true. And, and so in the contemporary period, some people have thought, just to kind of remind us of that, some people have occasionally used she, just to kind of remind us that God is not a he. But we find that very disconcerting, a lot of us. It feels disorienting. And in some ways, it should be disorienting because God is not a he or a she. God is beyond gender. Um, but we tend, but it has repercussions, right? I mean, the, the uncomfortable part is even though in our heads we somehow know that God is beyond gender, that has not kept the church tradition from in some ways using God as he in all kinds of ways that have been unhelpful. We don't have to spell all that out today. You're adults, you know this. Right. Um, like all the... I was given last week, some of you may have seen that I was given a giant family Bible last week. It's a lovely, a lovely gift. Uh, Vicki gave it to me. Um, she was going through her father's things and there was this, I mean, that's, I'm talking massive. It's about that thick, about this big. A pictorial Bible that uh, was her father's, and it was produced in 1890. Beautiful, leather-bound, uh, that she, she wanted me to have. So I was looking through it this week, and of course there's all kinds of illustrations. Uh, beautiful, beautiful color illustrations. I mean, imagine color illustrations in 1890. Every one of them has a, a little insert, pla uh, paper, thin paper cover sheet for it, right? Uh, when it was printed. Um, but of course, every, I mean, there are hundreds of pictures in there of God who looks like an old man. <laughs> right? Every, I mean, you would not be surprised. Every single one of them has God as an old man. And so it's not, it's not coincidence that I grew up thinking of God as an old man. And you probably did too. Even though if you thought hard about it, you knew that wasn't quite right. Right? That God isn't an old man. Right? Um, and we can be grateful for that. But that's the limits of our imagination, the limits of our language. And so one of the things we thought we would do this summer, because people are in and out, and so we try to talk each week about a different image that scripture uses of God. So last week we talked about Father. And I said I would try to focus on a number of ones that are in scripture and in the tradition, but that we don't use very often, just to see what they might, how they might enrich our understanding of God. We would just sort of try it on for a day. And I, as I was working this week, it occurred to me that before we got too far along to obscure images for God, that we might this week take one more relatively familiar one and just show that how even a relatively familiar one still complements the more common ones. 
how they're different and they come at it differently. Just to kind of help us begin to see how metaphors can be complementary. Images can be complementary. They don't have to displace one. I was very clear last week that even though there are limitations to calling God Father, that doesn't mean we get rid of it. Right? I have no desire to get rid of that. I think we would be lesser if we just jettisoned that. Uh, there's something important about thinking of God as a parent. Uh, even though it doesn't say everything we want to say about God. So today I thought we would talk, and I actually, I don't, I, I'm not sure I've ever done this. Maybe it's might have been the first time or the second time. The first time? I thought it was the first time where I preempted Wallace's choice of song uh, and asked, could we sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus? Because we're going to talk about God as friend. Right? Um, which I have to admit, uh, I have a kind of love-hate relationship with the image. Um, I was taught early on um, in my generation um, that Jesus was my friend. And I certainly sang this song growing up. What a friend we have in Jesus. So it's hard not to have had. We said you learn a lot of your theology through hymns and songs. right? So for most of you, that was not a new song today. You'd sung that once or twice sometime in your life, right? Most of you didn't need the hymnals, actually. You knew it, right? Um, so this is not a new image for you of Jesus as friend. Um, what has always, not, I wouldn't say always, as I got older, what made me worried about the image um, was the way in which some people used it. It seemed to me to be a little too cozy a little too familiar, right? Like Jesus is my buddy. Yeah. Right? God is my buddy, God's my best friend, right? We're chums, right? And, it, and that, you know, that feels like, there are times that that feels like, well, I'm trying to get my head around that the God of the universe, the maker of all that is, is my chum. <laughs> Right? There's something about that that seems, that borderlines, feels like it's disrespectful, maybe. Right? So that was, and this is, these are good tensions to have, right? So um, I think you're going to feel that, and I want you to feel that each week when we talk about this, that, that every image tries to capture something, but it's, there's also something unsettling rightly about the image that doesn't sit quite right, which is why it alone can't be the only image. Right. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, what it might mean to think of God or Jesus uh, as friend, if there's some sense in which Jesus is, is God in the flesh, um, in all the complicated ways we have to sort of talk about that. Then what does it mean, what might it mean to think of God as friend? And how, how might that complement what it means to think of God as parent, we talked about last week. Because um, all of you know, I mean, those of you who've been parents, even if you haven't had your own children, you've parented other people. Um, I can remember being told early as a young parent that one of the things you have to get over is you have to uh, 
realize that you're not your young children's friend. Right? Remember being told that? There was something wise about that. Right? Um, that if you just try to be your children's friend all the time, particularly when they're young, you're not going to be a good parent. Right? Um, and I found that I was glad somebody told me that because I certainly had to struggle with that. So th those two images are somewhat in tension. That there's, there's a different kind of relationship between a parent and a child as there are between friends. And what we want to do today is try to open up that metaphor a little bit and try to see in what sense is the, the image or metaphor of friend appropriate for our relationship with God. And how does it add something? How does it help us see something that might not be seen if we were just to stick to the God as parent image? So that's what we're about today. And that'll get us kind of going along this trajectory, I hope, of looking at different images and seeing how no one, we're not asking uh, us to get rid of any images or metaphors. We're, we're, just, we're not saying this one displaces the other one. We're saying it complements it. It helps us see something. Um, because there's just too much you want to say about God that's worth saying that no one image captures. And language just fails us. Um, but we still have to say something. Um, I, I found this experience of language failing. Some of you know that um, when I was playing hooky, from, I really wasn't playing hooky from class. I was traveling, uh, taking a trip that I always wanted to take. I, uh, if you weren't here last week, I went to Florence for a couple of weeks. Uh, Italy, Italy, Italy. <laughs> Not Florence, Alabama, Kentucky, uh, South Carolina. There are lots of other lovely Florences. Uh, I'm not standing in judgment of them. But the one in Tuscany is amazing. And I'd always wanted to go there. And, and two, of the, two of the experiences I had that uh, speech I mean, I feel like I want to say something about, but I know I can't say anything about, was one, um, I was at the academy, I went to see Michelangelo's sculpture of David. How many, how many of you have stood before that? I know a lot of you have. You know what I mean. Uh, I, I was actually like the second one in the building that morning at 8, 8.30 in the morning. So I got there, I actually got there before there was a thousand people. Um, but I stood there for about an hour, just kind of walking slowly around that statue. Because it looks, that sculpture looks different depending on what angle you're looking at it. I mean, you think you kind of got David's, the look of David, and you shift, and it's, he's got a completely different look in a different place depending on where you're looking at it. It's, like, it's incredible sculpture. Um, I don't know how to, I mean, I feel like I have to say something about what I experienced, but I don't even know how to bring it to speech. I was just sort of dumbfounded for an hour. Um, and I had a similar kind of experience when I, the other, one of the things, I, other thing I wanted to see was a famous uh, painting by Fra Angelico, who painted frescoes. And if you go to um, San Marco, in Florence, which is an old monastery uh, where Fra Angelico uh, lived for many years. Uh, 
he and his students, but he actually painted these huge frescoes in every cell of every monk. I mean, any one of which is incredible. But as you're going up the stairs to the cells, at the very top is perhaps his most famous fresco, and it's of the Annunciation. And it is, again, beyond words, beautiful. In fact, when, when Michelangelo saw it, I mean, the face of Mary is like no face of Mary you've ever seen. And Michelangelo, when he saw it, said, no human being painted this face. No human being could paint this face. He had never seen anything. That's, that's pretty high praise, right? When Michelangelo says that of your painting. And so it didn't take long before, I mean, the sort of story, the sort of legend that, that grew up around the fresco was that Fra Angelico had left Mary's face until the very end. And when he woke up the very morning to finish the face, it was already done. Right. Um, but again, I stood there for an hour just looking at this from different angles. It's a stunning. And I'd seen pictures of it, of course. Uh, just like I'd seen pictures of David, but just standing before it was completely different, and words just failed me. Now, if I as a human being can have that experience of words just, they're just not adequate, they just fail me. And what I'm looking at is a beautiful creation of human beings. It shouldn't surprise me if words fail me when I'm trying to bring God to speech. Okay, this, this, this shouldn't surprise us that our language only goes so far and then you just feel inadequate. So we're, we're just sort of exploring that very basic truth about the Christian faith this summer that as the great fifth century theologian Augustine said, you know, we don't know what to say about God but we can't remain silent. Right, we have to say something, but we say it in, with humility. We say it with humility, knowing that our words never capture completely everything there might be to say about God. So let's just reflect a few minutes um, on what it might mean to be friends of God. Now, the first thing to say, and this is a, a kind of a warning to the kind of, my kind of worry about being overly chummy. Uh, it's interesting that scripture in no, no place in scripture, Old or New Testament, does any human being claim to be a friend of God or God as their friend. Okay. So, so there, there's a moment of humility. No one in scripture ever claims themselves to be God's friend. Okay. Now it is the case that a couple people are named as friends of God, but not by them, right? Uh, Abraham is, was named as a friend of God and so was Moses. And as we'll, what we're gonna, the passage we're gonna read today is this kind of interesting passage uh, in 
John's Gospel, chapter 15, in that so-called farewell discourse when Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples, where Jesus calls his disciples friends. Right? He didn't, they didn't presume to say, hey, Jesus, you're our buddy. He says, I call you no longer servants, but friends. And he tells them why. Okay. So it's, it's relatively limited. It's not a, a very prominent way of talking about the relationship. But the fact that Jesus uses it, I think, just as Jesus authorizes the use of father language, I think there's some sense in which Jesus calls us friends. So let's see if we can figure out what he might mean by that and why it might be helpful in thinking about our relationship with God. So if you have your, your Bible and you want to turn to John chapter 15, that's where we are. And we're going to start about verse 12 in chapter 15. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one, you've heard this many times, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. So notice there in that passage, Jesus is using father language and friend language interestingly enough. So let's, let's pay attention to what he's saying here. So one of the things about father, the relationship between parent and child, is there's clearly uh, a kind of, of hierarchy there. Um, any of you have, who have been parents know that at least, I suspect, I'd be very surprised that at least one time, at least once in your parenting, um, when your child sort of balked at something that you asked them to do, and they said, why do I have to do that? You simply said, because I said so. <laughs> right? End of discussion, by which you meant there is no discussion. Right? I said do it, so do it. I'm the parent, you're not. I'm in charge, you're not. Go do what I said. Right? I mean, now that's not all that a parental relationship is. But there are times when that is what it is. Okay? There's a clear, in that relationship, there's a clear hierarchy, if you will. Um, but it's also the case that there comes a time when your children get older that you do feel, rightly, the necessity to explain your judgments about why some things are to be done and other things not, right? 
Because you want them to internalize these judgments. You don't want them just, you don't want them to be 45 years old and calling you up saying, what am I supposed to do? Command me to do the right thing. Right? You want them to know internally what the right thing is. That's the mark of maturity. It's not a mark of maturity if you, every point in your life you have to look to the parent to command you what the right thing to do is. And we understand that. Well, Jesus seems, at this point in his relationship with the disciples, to be making this shift toward a different kind of relationship, a different kind of maturity. <coughs> Notice he's still commanding them. He says, I've commanded you to love one another. You might think, how do you command love? Well, you can't if you think it's a feeling, right? You can't command somebody to feel a certain way. At least I haven't had much luck in doing that. Maybe you've had better luck. Um, I command you to be happy. Um, just doesn't work that way. You really can't command. But love isn't a feeling for Jesus, right? I mean, love for Jesus is seeking relentlessly the well-being of someone else. Right? Um, as we've said in here numerous times, you don't have to like someone to love them. I don't have to like you to seek your well-being. I can still want what's best for you, even if I don't find you very likable. I don't want to have coffee with you. I don't want you to be my next door neighbor. You know, I might not really want to have much to do with you at all, but I still feel led by God to seek your well-being, right? And Jesus commands this of us. But then he goes on to say, I do not call you servants or slaves, really. The, the language is really slave. They don't call you slaves, and you're not a slave who just sort of does what's commanded. I no longer call you slaves because the slave doesn't know what the master's doing. It doesn't have the big picture. Right? When you're a slave, I mean, you're just told what to do, and you go do it, and it doesn't really matter why you're being told to do it. It doesn't really matter if it makes sense to you. It doesn't even matter if you understand what you're doing, how it fits into any larger plan. It's not your job. Your job is just to do it. But Jesus says, I don't, I don't call you slave anymore. I call you friends. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I heard from my Father. So I've revealed to you what God is doing. Okay. I've revealed to you what God is doing. And, th and that was an act of intimacy, this, this revealing something, this, this beautiful mystery of what God is doing in the world. That's an act of intimacy in this relationship, but it's also an act that calls forth a kind of maturity from the disciples. Because now, because they are in the know, and remember this is Jesus' farewell discourse, he's going away. He does say he's going to send an advocate, a comforter, someone who will lead them, but they aren't going to be able to say, Jesus, what do we do in this situation? And Jesus is not going to whisper in their ear saying, I command you to do this. You've got to grow up. 
now, right? You're my, you're my friends. Right? Friends have something in common and something deep, right? The ancient, I mean, you have to, we have to think about, just like last week, we thought a little bit about, well, how did, how did Jesus' contemporaries think about parents and fathers? Because if you don't understand that, then you don't realize how radical uh, Jesus was in talking about, say, the father of the prodigal son, who was unlike any father they'd ever seen. Well, they understood that friendship, bonds of friendship, were one of the most important friendships, in, uh, most important relationships in, in ancient Greece. They thought a lot about friendship. Um, but they, they understood that at the heart of friendship is this bond of wanting to live into what it means fully to be a human being. Even the ancient Greeks, who were, by our standards, you know, pagans, understood that uh, you couldn't be fully human alone. It was not a, an individual project to be a human being. You needed other people to make you more than you would be otherwise. And so to be fully human and to live into your full humanity, you needed other people who would help you live into the good the highest good that human beings were capable of. And so deep friends had that aspiration in common. They wanted to push each other to be the best humans they could be. So when we say they had something in common, we don't mean they, they, they both you know, um, liked pistachio gelato. You know, and that's what held them together, right? As important a bond as that might be, right? That's not... That's not what they're talking about, having something, something deep in common. And Jesus is now saying what we have in common as friends is we have this vision that was revealed to me, Jesus says at first, by the Father, and now I have revealed it to you about what God's deepest desires are for the world. And as my friends now... Um, you have to live into this vision. And the Spirit's going to help you, but it does mean that you're going to have to make choices, just like adult children. I mean, one of the beautiful things about having adult children is that they're adults. <laughs> right? But we still call them adult children. I mean, in some sense, they're always going to be our children. And... And that's a beautiful thing. I, I love having our adult children back in the house. And they're sitting around having adult conversations. And I don't ever have to play because I said so anymore. I can't remember the last time I did that. I don't have to do that anymore. That feels like liberation, doesn't it? I mean, it's a beautiful thing to think that, not that my children agree with everything I think about the world and everything, that, all the ways that I think they might live their lives, but they have some idea of what my aspirations are for them. And some of those, maybe the better ones, they have internalized by God's grace. But that's, that's a mark of maturity to, to receive your children back as friends. 
right? It doesn't always happen, but when it does, it's a beautiful thing, right? Uh, it's it's complementary, right? Being a parent and being a friend, those don't have to be at odds with each other, although in different periods of life they can be. And so, so Jesus seems to be inviting us. Jesus, in some sense, befriends us. He's still, I mean, what's, you know, one of the, the unsettling parts about the friendship language is um, we're not sort of co-equal partners in the friendship. Well, the, the ancient Greeks thought that true friendship could only exist between equals, which, sorry, uh, Ladies, I mean, this is why the ancient Greeks thought women couldn't be friends. Sorry, it just, it was weird. They, they were just wrong about this, but they were wrong about a lot of things. Um, because, yeah, we'll have to go there. Um, but they, they, they had a lot of things they were, they were wrong about. It's, like a, it's a humble thing. We're wrong about a lot of things, too. Somebody will tell us, you know, 500 years from now how... Uh, silly we were about a whole kinds of things that seem pretty obvious to us. Um, but Jesus, while he calls us friends, in some, in some sense, the language we need here is that Jesus has be befriended us. You know how the language of befriend is a little different than being friends? Have you ever been befriended by someone who was your superior, who didn't have to befriend you. Um, I had a, a, a dear professor in my graduate work when I was at Duke, um, who was a very well-known theologian, and I was in awe of him and completely humbled by him. But by chance, we became uh, running buddies over time. And so about five or six years, four or five times a week, we would run together at lunchtime. And so over time, we actually became friends, but it was at his initiative, right? He asked if I would run with him. And so, of course, I said yes, because I knew I'd actually, he would educate me, and he did. Sort of, I got my education sort of on the run, so to speak. <laughs> um, but he did, the point is, he didn't have to do that. And, and we were, even though he tried, I mean, he tried in his own humility to assume that we were equals, I never felt that. It was always clear to me that I was not his equal, right? Um, but this was an act of grace. He befriended me. Uh, I hope that he got something from the friendship. But it felt, I mean, it felt to me like I was receiving a lot more than I was giving. And, but he was okay with that. Because that's, that's the way befriending often happens. I mean, that's why we use that language. You can befriend someone who isn't necessarily, quote, your equal in social status in the way that all that's uh, sort of uh, comes through in cultures. And so Jesus sort of befriends us. He allows us to be and calls us to be his friends, to be his uh, fellow participants in this uh, in this mission, if you will, in this calling to follow the way of Jesus, 
uh, to understand what God's purposes are in the world and to be and to be part of that, to have that in common. And there's a kind of intimacy that comes from that when you have a common purpose, particularly when it's something deep, not trivial. There's a kind of deep intimacy that comes from that. And again, we hope that, I mean, there's certainly a kind of intimacy between a parent and a child, of course. Uh, it is a different kind of intimacy. Um, and part of the intimacy that comes from friendship that's a little different than the intimacy of parenthood is that in friendship, it's clear that there's a choice. I mean, part of what moves you, it moves me about being in the handful of deep friendships that you have is that you know those relationships didn't have to be. People chose to be in those relationships. Most of you didn't choose your parents. I, I think I'm pretty, you look befuddled by that, but I think that's true. Okay? Like, I don't know all your stories, but I'm, most of you didn't choose your parents. I mean, we, we are in some ways stuck with our families, for good and ill, right? There's a lot that's good about that. And we talked about that. We talked about the church's family of God, to be reminded that we don't just choose. I'm, we're stuck with each other here, right? You're stuck with me. Sorry. I'm stuck with you. Sorry. I mean, that's just the way it is, right? We're part of the same family. We didn't choose each other. You don't choose families, for the most part. Okay. But friends, you do choose. And notice that Jesus says here, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Right? Uh, Jesus chose us. Jesus befriends us. We're the recipients of this act, invitation to friendship and the intimacy that it brings and the common cause that it brings. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, that, that God, we always talk about us Trusting God. At the very heart of the Christian faith is this posture of trust. You have to trust your friends. You trust your parents. Uh, the trust relationship in a friendship is a little different than the trust relationship uh, in a parent-child relationship. But there's, there's trust there. But we said even though the relationship between us and God as friends is not mutual in the sense that uh, God is certainly on the, the, the is befriending us. But it is remarkable uh, and, and also beautiful that God is at some level in befriending us. When Jesus makes this shift in his relationship with disciples and says, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. God is, in some sense, trusting us to carry on what God's about in the world. Not on our own strength, not on our own wisdom, not on our own cleverness. God is certainly empowering us with the Spirit. But God is still trusting our 
increased maturity to make these difficult judgments about what does following the way of Jesus mean in this situation where there's no clear command, no express teaching in Scripture, which is honestly much, if not most of the time. There is no clear command that says this absolutely is the only thing that could be done now. Which is what we find ourselves doing both as children and as friends. I mean, we're, we're trying to figure this out together. Not alone, but as friends. As, in some ways, partners with God in God's world. God has invited us to be part of this thing that God's doing. God's not just doing something in the world and we're just spectators. Right? We're not just watching what God's doing in the world. God has invited us as friends to be part of that together. And we have been chosen, and, and we have to, like, even though we can be befriended, we have to be willing to be part of that. And that's a beautiful part of our relationship with God that isn't fully captured just with parent language. And so there's all kinds of dangers with friend language. It can be trivialized, as it often is in American culture, uh, where you can, you know, anybody can be in a friend when they may just be an acquaintance. But friends, um, there's still something mysterious about being a friend. You might, this is the other side of this, the, the too cozy part of relationships. We talk about friends just being chums, and um, is if if you think about the friends that you consider to be your deepest, maybe lifelong friends, whoever you think of as your dearest friends, uh, and there's probably not more than a handful of them. My hunch is that you know each other well enough to know that there's still mystery there in the other person. This is the paradox of friendship, right? Um, my dear friends, I think I know them well. I've known them for 30, 35 years. And yet, they remain a mystery to me. There's more to them than I know. Right? And, and it's, there's something beautiful about that. You know, sometimes when I just have an acquaintance, and I think, and I, again, I've kind of caricatured them. I think I know them. I don't don't even know them enough to know what I don't know, right? But dear friends, you do. You know there, there remains this mystery of the human person. And if human beings rightly remain mystery to each other, so more is God. So God is parent, father, mother. Uh, God is, in some sense, befriended us and called us to be friends of God. And in fact, much of the ancient tradition, this surprised me when I discovered this, names this as our ultimate goal, is friendship with God. That's how they named, that's how they named, much of the tradition, that's how they named what, quote, salvation is. That was their way of naming it was this union, communion, friendship with God. That's our ultimate goal. 
So it's worth thinking about. What's it, what would friendship with God mean on a daily basis? Um, it's, a, it's a provocative and rich image. <clears throat> Let's pray. Gracious God, we are, we are humbled at the way that you have condescended to, to bring who you are to human speech, and that you've even condescended to take human flesh. May we remain humble in what we say we know about you. May we always allow you to be more than we can say or know or think and yet, you call us into friendship, into common cause and purpose. You have invited us to be your friends and to be about what you're about. And so, as we ponder on the life of Jesus, who was accused of being the friend of sinners, might we reflect on our own daily lives and our own relationships and who we find ourselves in company with. And might we be about what you are about and be worthy by your grace to be regarded as your friends. We pray this through the one who called us his friends, Jesus Christ. Amen.